it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, so welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 165. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to go back to the well and answer a whole bunch of answer uh, listener questions. Uh, we have some fantastic ones that we want to read to you guys on air and go ahead and answer them for you. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first question. So the question is, question for you, loving the content, wanted to ask you about your opinions on volatility indexes, VIX or VIX slash TVIX and others. Why is something like the TVIX tied inversely to the S&P 500? Isn't it its own company? So why doesn't it trade on the NYSE or New York Stock Exchange? New to investing, but have been educating myself intensely for the last two months. Interested in your thoughts on this. So am I. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Okay, so the VIX is the volatility index, essentially. You might hear about the VIX in times when the stock market's in turmoil. Um, when you see a, a sharp crash, that's usually when you have a lot of volatility. And so... Like last March? Yeah, like last March. That would be what the VIX tries to track. And then the T-VIX that he's talking about is basically like an ETF that's leveraged. So, you know, if the VIX were to go up to like a 60, then the TVIX would go up double, like 120, something like that. So he mentions that uh, why is something like TVIX tied inversely to the S&P? So it's not a guarantee that high volatility means that the market's going to go down, but oftentimes... When there's a crash, there tends to be a lot of volatility. So, you know, that volatility could look like the market bouncing up and down like it did in March, where it's up 5%, down 5%, up 5%, down 5%, something like that. So you can have, you know, like a relatively strong market with a high VIX too. Um, People like to use the VIX kind of like as a recession indicator, not not recession, like a bear market indicator. And so, you know, sometimes they'll try to trade the VIX on that. You know, I, I've heard traders talk about, well, why don't I just mix a stock, long stock portfolio with a VIX component? 
it's like a you can't lose right because if the stock market crashes then the vix should go up and then so that those trades will profit while your long trades on the market are are going down um but it doesn't really work out that easily i'll give i'll give one example so particularly with this tvix that um this listener is asking about it it's a leveraged etf and so the problem with those is any leverage ETF is just really bad to own over the long term. Um, they have, I, I think it's called a tracking error. That's one reason for it. Another reason, which I'll, I'll try to illustrate. So when you have a leveraged ETF, basically you're taking the returns and magnifying them. So like I said, if, if the VIX is up 2%, the ETF will be up 4%. If it's down 3%, the ETF will be down 6%. You have it leveraged is stumbling. The problem with that is it's it's doing it on a daily basis and it's leveraging on a daily basis. And so the problem with volatility, and if you're not only, you know, volatility is fine for a long-term investor because as long as you're not jumping in and out, you know, as long as it, it goes up over the long term, you're fine. You're not taking those losses as real losses. But something like a leverage ETF, which is rebalanced every day. It needs to buy and sell at, at the beginning and end of those days. And so those big swings up and down, up and down, they're magnified because they're leveraged. And now, you know, when it loses, it loses a lot and then it needs to make that up. And so if you know the math behind gains and losses, if you lose 10%, it's going to take 11% to gain that back. If you lose 25%, it's going to, it's going to require gaining 33%. If you lose something like, 40% you're going to need a 60% return i believe and, and it just gets worse and worse the the more money you lose and so with a leveraged etf as those things are swinging up and down they're taking those losses and taking those gains and so over the very long term if you're holding something like a tvix in your portfolio um you're really fighting against mathematics because you're having to take those losses every every single day and it's generally just doesn't work out. And so it's it's really not anything like the type of investing we like to teach. <laughs> we like to teach buying stocks for the long term, um, having part ownership in these businesses and having these businesses grow their cash flows over time and then be able to pay some of those cash flows back to you and grow the value of the business. Uh, when you're talking about trading vehicles that are leveraged and tracking an index, there's not really anything underneath them other than just more financial instruments. And so they're not creating real business value. You know, I, I buy a business, it has a brand, it provides a customer with something that makes them happy. That's why they pay for it. Uh, provides a, an employee with a job that provides shareholders with profits. There's value added there. These things that are these f fancy financial instruments that are leveraged, they're not doing anything other than just pushing numbers around and trading little pieces of virtual paper. So, you know, there's there's no economic value added at the end of the day. And a lot of times these things don't grow over time because again, they're not cr they're not creating anything. They're not creating cash flows. Um, it's not something that can compound in a way that's that works for you unless in the in the case of a VIX or the T VIX if you just happen to be buying them at times when there's high volatility. But if you look at the history of the market over the very, very long term, volatility is more of a 
special event than it is a recurring feature. And so it's not something I'm really interested in. It's a, it's a good idea and it's it's definitely good understanding the concepts of it. But, you know, for all those reasons is why I don't, I don't really buy them as a long-term strategy. That was very interesting. I learned a thing or two. I was uh, honestly not super familiar with the VIX. So thank you for sharing that with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, I'm new to investing, but studying rigorously. I've been listening to your podcast with, with Dave. Is retained earnings okay to use when measuring a company's earnings growth year to year? I understand it's not the only measurement of growth. Could you recommend a good free program for keeping track of the important info associated with buying and selling a stock? Thank you for your time, Mitch. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Let's tackle this in two parts. Dave, you wrote a post. I know it was a while ago. It was like back in February. Um, You uncovered retained earnings pretty well. So if you can try to break it down in like layman's terms for us, assume somebody doesn't know anything about retained earnings. What, What are we talking about here? And is it a decent measurement for earnings growth? Okay, so retained earnings. Retained earnings is a line item that you will find on a balance sheet. So when you go to a balance sheet at towards the bottom, you'll see a line item that says retained earnings. Now what that includes is in essence it's money that's left over after the company pays out dividends, will pay out any sort of buy share repurchases or pays off any debt. So in other words, it's all the money that the company has made over the course of the you know year or so, and they park it there until they decide what they want to do with it. Uh, generally, it is something that you would like to see go up, but maybe not as much as you'd like it to see go up as something like earnings. And here's the reason why. There are some companies that it really depends on where they are in their life cycle. For example, if you're looking at a company like Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola is going to take the majority of their earnings and they are going to pay them back as dividends. I'm not exactly sure what their payout ratio is, but I'm going to guess it's in the 75 to 85% range, which means that the majority of the money that they make, so if they make $100, they're going to give $75 worth of those $100 back to shareholders in dividends or they could do it in a combination of dividends and share buybacks, however they choose to do it. So those $25 they have left over would would go in the retained earnings section. And then the company can choose to use that to either reinvest in the company or they may hold on to it because they have a project maybe that they're going to be undertaking in a year or two or something along those lines. So in essence, that's what retained earnings is. So does, is that is that clear? It's very clear. Uh, I would like to make a input, I guess. Um, of course. So something that confused me for a very long time about retained earnings, basically to the point where I just ignored it, was, okay, so you have the balance sheet, right? And you can take this with your personal finances, just like you can take it with a business. You have assets, you have liabilities, and you have equity. So generally on Wall Street, when you talk about these businesses, you're talking about what they call equity is also called shareholders equity. And so you'll have, you know, let's say we have 50 million in cash, we have 150 million in uh, inventory and everything else. And then let's say there's 25 million in debt. And so you take 
all of that. And then what's left over is the equity. When I figured out that retained earnings is just another expression of shareholders equity, that's when it made sense to me. So like you have to separate it from the balance sheet, even though it's technically inside the balance sheet. And so, you know, on the balance sheet, they're they're going to list out the assets, they're going to list out the liabilities, and then the equity part. And then, if you think of retained earnings as part of that equity, and then the other part is capital stock, that's what they call it. It's basically the equity that investors put into the business when they start the business. So, if Dave and I were to make a brand new startup, and let's say we both put in. $20 million uh, into this startup to fund it, then my $20 million, his $20 million would be $40 million, and that would be the capital stock. And then any earnings we, we um, earned on the startup on top of that would go into retained earnings. Now, what those earnings look like on the balance, like on the balance sheet, or as they pay, like Dave explained, you could pay them out in dividends, right? Or you could keep it internally to grow the business. Those earnings might come in different flavors or different expressions. So, you know, maybe, maybe 10 million we use to um, buy a new store or buy the land for a new store. Maybe another 15 million we use to buy inventory. So, like, you're not pulling that 15 million, that 10 million from retained earnings. Retained earnings is just kind of keeping the score. It's like keeping a box score of how much the company earns or loses over time. So you have the capital stock, you have the retained earnings together that makes up the equity. And then the other parts of the balance sheet will really tell you where where like the actual numbers are. So that kind of threw me off for a long time. And I didn't really understand it until I kind of separated it from the balance sheet. So you have to understand like retained earnings aren't a thing. It's not like a, a number on, in a checking account for the business. It's just more like a tally of how the business is done. So, like, let's say if the business has been losing money, let's say Dave and I had our startup and we put twenty million in each, so we have forty million in capital stock. And then instead of earning money, we're losing money. So, uh, let's say we lose fifteen million. Now our capital stock's down to twenty-five million, right? And so instead of retained earnings going up, it's going down. And so what that's going to do, it's going to add liabilities to our balance sheet because we're going to have to borrow to continue to fund losing a, a, a company that's losing money. And so that's where you know that new debt to fund this money that we're burning essentially will show up on the balance sheet. And so that's how the shareholders' equity will come down to match how the capital stock's reducing. Just like on the flip side, when you're earning money, and you're adding equity. So you might add inventory, you might add land, and that adds to your shareholders' equity. And then that's where it also balances by adding to the retained earnings. I hope that's not like crazy too deep into the weeds, but that's that's how I think of it. And I think that's that's how um, you need to think about it. It's like a separate entity from what the rest of the balance sheet's trying to describe. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, 
I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah, that's perfect. I would totally agree with that. Uh, so let's, let's tackle the second part of that question then. So, uh, he asks if, uh, he, we understand it's, uh, he, I understand it's not the only measurement of growth. Uh, I don't personally look at retained earnings as a measure of growth at all. When I'm talking about growth, I'm either looking for earnings growth or revenue growth. Uh, retained earnings growth for me, like Andrew was saying, it's more of an accounting uh, function as opposed to actual physical physical cash. It's money that the the company actually owns and it and it can use, but it's not like Andrew was saying. It's not sitting in a bank account. And so, when we're talking about growth, what you're really wanting to look at is more along the lines of revenue or earnings growth as a measurement of the performance of the company. Uh, retained earnings is something that you want to follow and and look at more as a what is the company doing with the money that they're making and do they have plans for that money either now or sometime in the future it's not necessarily a measurement of growth you're not going to look at an analyst report and have them talk about retained earnings it's really not something that is discussed along those lines Andrew what are your thoughts uh, I, yeah, I guess I would generally agree with that. 
Could you recommend a good free program for keeping track of the important info associated with buying and selling a stock? What are your thoughts on that? I guess I personally keep track with my own spreadsheet, so I can't really be helpful with that. Um, I'm not selling in and out of a ton of stocks. I don't really need to keep track of the trading history too much. So I just made a spreadsheet on Google Sheets. I, I put the positions I have in there and that's that's the extent of me tracking my buying and selling. How about you? Yeah, same. I, I do that too. Uh, I know that there are uh, Seeking Alpha, for example. I know their portfolio, uh, they have updated the ability on the website now to enter information about companies that you buy. For example, you can you can notate when you buy Apple and you can notate how many shares you buy and at what price you buy so that they can kind of keep track of your performance per se. Uh, I also know that with uh, Schwab that I can go on my brokerage account and I can see how the companies are, you know, how the portfolio is doing as well as uh, any cost basis, uh, my gains, losses, all that kind of stuff. I can see all that on there as well. But I do the same thing with Andrew. I just, I just look at uh, a spreadsheet that I created. Easy peasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the brokers make it so easy these days. They do. They do, for sure. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. All right. Moving on to the next question. Hey, Andrew. My name is Fernando, and I am a fan of your podcast and investing values. I am currently binge listening to the episodes, and I am in episode 42. Hopefully, I can catch up quick. And in episode 39, you mentioned how your $150 monthly portfolio is an IRA. My question is, is that still the same currently? I am about to open an account with Fidelity, and I want to follow your method. That episode was aired in 2017, and I'm just wondering if anything has changed. Thank you and Dave for your time and help. Keep up the amazing work. Kind regards, Fernando. Yeah, so I stick to 150 because it's simple, it's easy, um, it's a nice habit. Certainly, somebody following along can can increase that, especially... I don't know, as inflation hits over time or as these contribution limits to IRAs raise year, year to year to year. I, you know, I certainly have my own retirement strategies too, but as it pertains to the real money portfolio, which I post in the e-leather, it's, it's just a simple $150 a month. It's, it's supposed to be something that's achievable. It's supposed to be something simple and you know something that hopefully you don't have to make too many sacrifices to follow that path along. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's be- definitely better than doing nothing. And, and what was nice about that number, 150, was did the compound interest calculator and, and you, you saw what average stock market returns could do if, if you had something even as small as... 11% per year, which would be a 1% outperformance on on the stock market based on what it's averaged for a very long time, then that 150 monthly could become a million dollars over 40 years. So if somebody's starting relatively young or you know perceives themselves to live to be relatively old, they could have a million dollars and not have to, you know, hit the hit the lottery or 
or you know do something immoral or or, or anything like that right just a small sacrifice 150 dollars a month so that's really kind of the the driving story behind it and you know what's 150 dollars a month these days it's like you know a cell phone bill or or maybe a couple nights out at a restaurant so it's not asking you to radically change your life or anything like that. Um, just to reshuffle some priorities and, and try to just have some sort of habit that's sustainable that over time will build wealth. And so, yeah, I mean, I still recommend it. The, the, the real money portfolio still does it. Um, and if you can do more then do more, uh, obviously as much as you can do and save and invest the better, but I think it's a, a fantastic place to start. I guess the question for you then along the lines of Fernando's question then, or is the portfolio still in an, a Roth IRA? Yeah. I, I've had to shuffle accounts around, like I mentioned in the past, you know, moving away from Ally, depending on the year I've had to deal with like backdoor Roth. So you can get kind of complicated, but you know, you can, you can look that kind of stuff up, but even, even somebody who doesn't, necessarily qualify for a Roth anymore. They they can still find ways to do it through like a backdoor Roth. And so it should be a path, you know, as the laws are now, it should be something that anybody can continue for for however the longs however however long the laws are allow those type of accounts, then yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And my, my, I have my account in a Roth IRA as well. It's, it's easy to do. It's super easy to open up when you open your account with Fidelity. You just get to choose what kind of account you want and you choose a Roth IRA. Uh, and then you kind of go from there. But before you make that choice, uh, I would definitely consider what is best for you and your particular circumstances. Just because Andrew and I have chosen to use Roth IRAs does not mean that necessarily everybody else, uh, has those particular circumstances, whatever they may be. Uh, some people, it may be better for them to use a combination of Roth and traditional or all Roth or all traditional. It just really depends on what your what your financial situation is and as well as consideration of taxes and how close you are to retirement and, and uh, all those other things. But uh, it's very they're very easy to open. It's like opening any other account. You can literally do it in five minutes. So uh, it's not complicated. I think being this question kind of highlights it perfectly. Being in a podcast medium will have people listening to this years in, in advance. And so, you know, the contribution limits change, the rules change all the time. I think it's a good time to talk about the, you did a module actually. Uh, you did a whole module on IRAs and really broke it down for absolute beginners. Um, it was part of our investing for beginners masterclass and we actually are reopening it now. So you can look at a lot of the basics, you know, why do you invest IRA for beginners? What's, what's that all about? What's a stock? What are bonds? Talk about interest rates, talk about some of the more nitty gritty earnings per share, dividends, you know, price to book, start talking about the balance sheet there. So um, that's, we just reopened that. That could be a way to learn more too. Uh, I also just highly recommend you have a website. I have a website. There are definitely topics been covered before, but yeah, everybody's personal finance situation is different. Everybody's kind of income is different. Tax situation is different and it changes over the years, but it's worth 
investigating for sure. It is, and it it really is not a complicated process. And just really quickly, the I guess the main difference between the two, if you, if you are going to look at them, is a traditional is I don't pay my taxes now, I pay them later, and a Roth is I pay them now, and I don't pay them later, and that's really the the basic gist of them. There's obviously more details to that uh, than that, but really those are the the quick, easy ways to think about the differences between them. Do I want to pay my taxes now or do I want to pay my taxes later? Because Uncle Sam is going to want their money at some point. So there is no way to avoid that. You have to you have to give them their money. But uh, really with, with the Roth of the traditional IRAs, uh, that's really the the consideration, one of the considerations you have to, th- to think about. So we'll move on to the last question. It's, it's more of a two questions here. It says, hey, Andrew, I sent you a separate email attached at the bottom. He says, uh, is it a smart slash safe strategy to have a portion of my Roth IRA in ETFs as well as single stocks, or will that dilute my returns? So let's talk about that one first. Having an allocation ETFs, thoughts? If that is your comfort level and that's how you want to invest, I have no issues with it. Uh, I personally prefer to, to buy single stocks, but that's not for everybody. Uh, ETFs versus single stocks, I can't see how it would dilute his returns other than maybe the single stocks. Okay, go for it. You, <laughs> if, you got, if you got opinions, man, share them. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to derail your train. I mean, no, yeah, I, 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 I think, wasn't on I think any train. <laughs> you covered it pretty well. It 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 is come down to a preference between if you believe in your abilities to pick individual stocks, or if you just kind of want to take a more passive approach and and buy ETFs. The it, it, I guess if you feel good about your stock selection strategy, if you feel good about your skills as a portfolio manager, then I think obviously having a big basket of stocks would dilute your turns in the sense it would it would bring you closer to the average returns, you know? So ETFs, that word can mean so many different things. You could be talking about a theme ETF. You could be talking about a market ETF. And so there'll be different implications behind that too. I don't see anything particularly wrong about it in the sense that like Dave said, if it's if it's in your comfort zone, then then go right ahead. You know, if, if you feel like you're you're not correctly exposed to I don't know, emerging markets or precious metals, anything like that. I mean it could be a nice filler in there. I would just try to be intelligent about how you're allocating it and it it does come down to your own individual portfolio, the stocks you already have, the stocks you're looking to get. And, um, you know, like a time where let's take a hypothetical time period where the top four or five big technology stocks in the S&P 500 make up a vast majority of the index, right? I might have more of a problem buying one of those versus Let's say I want to invest in airlines, but I don't want to pick a single stock. So I want to do like an ETF. Then you could do something like that. And maybe that's 
less diluting than buying a huge market weighted index that makes up just a few names that might be overvalued based on the fact that everybody's buying them. I think that's a good way to think about what what he was asking. Uh, I think that's probably the the better the better way to go. It really comes down to what you're comfortable with, like Andrew was saying. If you're comfortable with your abilities to pick individual stocks and manage a portfolio, then I think going that route is the best way for you. If that's not something that really floats your boat, but you really want to be invested and you just want to work with ETFs, there's nothing wrong with that. And Warren Buffett talks about it all the time being probably the best way to go for a great majority of people. And if that's the way that you want to go, then by all means, you know, jump right in and, and work it. But, uh, like Andrew was saying, I think trying to be judicious about the choices you make with the ETFs will also go a long ways towards how you do with the market. If you're buying exotic themed type ETFs, then I think you might struggle more than if you buy a few more mainstream type ones and go with those kinds of things. I think you'll probably do a lot better over the long term. I actually made the opposite point, but sure that works too. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like a tool, right? right? The, the ETFs could work like a tool where um, maybe I want to yes. use a, a very, very sharp saw, you know, and it's because I feel strongly about, an industry, but I don't want to pick a stock or maybe I feel strong about emerging markets, but I don't want to pick a country. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Andy Schuler was talking about that. One of his blog posts, he, uh, he chose the, was it the jet ETF? I believe it was because Mm -hmm. he wanted to try to dabble in airlines, but he didn't feel comfortable picking Delta versus United. So he just went with that instead. Uh, I haven't asked him how he, how, how that did for him, but I thought it was good. I thought it was a good idea because he just wasn't comfortable stepping into the, into the industry for sure. It's a good industry to be cautious in, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, the last uh, six months have definitely proven that, have they not? Mm. All right. Uh, moving on to the next part of his question. Uh, I found your podcast about a month ago and have binged the first 95 episodes so far. I have just about maxed out my Roth IRA, and I was wondering whether my regular taxable account should hold generally the same stocks as my IRA, or should I choose completely new stocks? I plan on only investing in dividend-paying companies and will contribute about $500 a month of, if that helps. Thanks again, Dave and Andrew. Eric. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? So I found with my own portfolio that the opportunities change from month to month. And that's particularly being, I think, a more value-focused investor. So a lot of times I'll have a stock... I don't want to say a lot of times, so it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but it happens that I'll have months where I'll, I'll buy a stock and it'll go up 5, 10, 15, 20%. And so is it still a good buy 10 or 20% more expensive than it was when I bought it originally? Because he talks about having these stocks in his IRA already. He's like, should I buy more of them? So, you know, maybe if you have a stock that's still around the same price and you still feel good about it, you want to buy more, buy more. If it's if it's cheaper, now you can get it on sale. Nothing really terrible has happened with the business. Buy more, why not? Um, but 
kind of like the other question too, keep it in the context of your whole portfolio. That's something I think we all need to keep in mind as investors, whether you're passively handing it off, passively just kind of randomly doing allocations in a retirement account, or whether you are doing something more active like this, try to have I, I would definitely I mean I'm a spreadsheet guy, obviously I'm gonna I'm gonna advocate a spreadsheet, but you know, I, I do look at what I'm exposed to from month to month, not only for the individual stocks. I, I've been trying to look at secularly how am I exposed. So it's like I think I figured I was something like thirty five percent exposed to stocks that would probably jump if we get a COVID vaccine. And then I was something like 15% allocated to if we had a recession. And so I had some you know, more defensive stocks in there. And then you have a certain percentage that maybe would do better if we had a weaker dollar. So I don't think you have to get as, as granular as that. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a lot more experienced than the average investor uh, who's, who's just starting out. But I think it's important to when you ask a question like I have a portfolio already, I have stocks already, how should I allocate my next money? Well, it depends how much money you have now, how much of that is in how many stocks, what what the percentages are there, and then what the market's giving you now, what what you're looking at for opportunities. And somewhere in there, I think a, a good answer will pop up and and then you just keep going from there. I mean, for me, when I'm doing these recommendations for the e-leather, I am pretty much trying to think of um, the the best new idea every single month, and I'm constantly reevaluating that. So even though I might like a business more, if it's 20% more expensive, maybe it's not as great of an investment as this other business that has a 30% margin of safety. And you know that sometimes it's going to depend on what Mr. Market is quoting you. And so that's why you, you kind of have to take it on the, on the month to month and you don't want to say, well, just do this or do that. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank Eric, Mitch, and Fernando for taking the time to write us those fabulous questions. We appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. And we hopefully answered your questions satisfactorily and you guys got some good knowledge out of our conversation tonight. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.